Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, head of books for The Telegraph, Gabby Wood, and the winner of the Man Booker Prize 2013, Eleanor Catton. Hello. <laughs> I'm Gabby. This is Eleanor Catton. Um, very, very pleased to be here with her. Um, you will by now know all the um, bold statistics, I'm sure. Um, she is the winner of the 2013 Man Booker Prize, the youngest ever winner. This is often repeated. You can dispute this in various ways in a minute. Um, the youngest ever winner. It's her second book, the novel is the longest ever to win the Man Booker Prize at 832 pages. Uh, and I state these things again um, in the full knowledge that they'll be made much more complicated when we get to hear from the real human being behind them. So um, please do join me in welcoming Eleanor Catton. So Eleanor's going to read from the luminaries um, in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your whirlwind week first. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy couple of days. Um, the media kind of storm started about uh, two minutes after I got off stage. <laughs> um, uh, there was a press conference right away and then interviews up until midnight and I was up again the next morning at 7 a.m. and doing more and yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah, quite strange for a writer who's used to being in their own world and writing. You know, the, the, the process of creating these things is so different from the process of presenting them somehow. Yeah, it is very strange. And I think that, um, I, don't, I don't know, you have to remember that they're two very different enterprises, really. You know, that, and for me at least, and I'm sure this is true for most writers, it's doing the kind of the public side of things is so secondary to how much fun it is just to be alone writing, you know, and to be kind of inside a paragraph. And, um, I, yeah, remembering that at all times is really important. That you need to go back to your desk. Right, you. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. I mean, presumably now you'll have to, you know, plan that time more carefully. Well, yeah, I mean, at the moment my time's being planned for me, but um, I'm kind of still in the whirlwind. <laughs> yeah. And the book itself, I mean, can you tell us a bit, I don't know how many of you have read it already, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about it. It's, it's very um, intricately structured, but actually um, that's, that's just the outside of it. When you're, once you're in it, um, you don't feel that at all. But um, can you yeah, tell us well, it's, it's interesting, the, the relationship between the structure and the, the plot of the book, really, because when I was putting this book together with my editors, we talked for a long time about... Um, how much of the structural conceit of the book to foreground. And my editors were, on the one hand, a little bit scared that if we were to foreground it too much, it might kind of, um, uh, I don't know, repel some readers, you know, f first of all, but also, um, I don't know, <laughs> make the balance come out of, out of whack, you know. Um, so really, just briefly, the book is, uh, on, on the plot side of things, it's a, a murder mystery, essentially which takes place in Gold Rush, New Zealand. And um, when the book opens, uh, a young uh, Scot um, has just arrived in New Zealand um, really to search for his father. And um, he arrives in Hokitika, a little town on the west coast of the, um, uh, of the South Island, and um, unwittingly, uh, accidentally, disturbs a, a council of 12 men who have met in secret to uh, discuss a series of crimes that have just very recently happened in the, in the town, or 
they're, they're, they're kind of crimes. They're more like mysteries, I suppose. There's a kind of some a lot of related mysteries, and um, that kind of sets the whole ball rolling. And his entrance, as it turns out, proves to be um, a, a part of the mystery that's already kind of a, a, at work. And um, but you know, as as on the other side of the coin, on the structural side, um, these twelve men in their in their personalities or in their um, archetypes, are each typical of one of the twelve signs of the zodiac, and in fact, um, the influence that this uh, incomer brings to bear upon their gathering is um, the influence of the planet Mercury. He, he as it turns out, is kind of um, is is that archetype himself, and what what follows is a um, I don't know, a, a kind of choreography, I suppose, where um, as the book rolls forward, each of the seven astrological planets, um, you know, we say planets kind of with inverted commas because that includes the sun and the moon, which obviously aren't planets. Um, each of the seven planets kind of move in and out of the lives of the 12 zodiacal characters in a way that um, reflects the, the movement of the heavens. Um, Yes, yeah, so you can see already that the, the structural side of things tends to dominate when I try and explain the book, um, which I don't think is quite uh, true to the reading experience, actually. No, no that's um, right. Well, well, hopefully it's not. But um, on the surface of it, the book really just does just read like a story, but the, there are all these uh, maybe patterns or harmonies or um, um, musical um, changes, key changes going on um, that... Uh, inform in the book in quite a different way. Yeah. I mean, as you were writing, was that second nature to you already? Uh, I mean, wh well, which was most second nature to you? The, the, the sort of stirring of the plot or the... Perhaps it's not an imposition, perhaps it comes from within of the structure. Well, they were born out of the same place. Um, you know, when I first started writing the book, um, when, when I wrote the first sentence of the book, which is, for me, always the first thing that I have to write and kind of have to move forward from there. Is it the, um, is it the remaining first sentence, the actual... Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I have, I have to move from the beginning and go, okay. go on. I can't do it any other way. Um, I already knew that I wanted to um, utilise this structure and kind of play with it in, in, in this way. And so um, I already had a, a, a chart um, for that first night on which the book um, begins. It begins on the 27th of January, 1866, which was, a, which was a night that I chose because I really liked what was happening in the, in the stars at that time. I found actually a really like, lovely um, Mac application, which I can say because we're <laughs> in, 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 yeah. in a Mac store. Advertise the app. Yeah. Um, which is called Stellarium, and I really recommend it. It's, um, I don't know if it's available. I, I assume it's available for iPad. I've got it on my um, Mac um, laptop at, um, <laughs> at, at home. But it's, um, essentially, it's a program where you can feed in any kind of um, coordinates you like from anywhere on Earth and a date. And you can just, you know, pull the skies around and look at what's happening. And you can search for various celestial objects. Um, you know, amazingly, you can, you can switch between Western con constellations and Indian, Chinese, Polynesian, you know, all, all sorts of other kind of um, ways that human beings have had of understanding the, the heavens, you know. Um, and so I'd been watching the heavens, I mean, it makes me sound a bit creepy, but I'd been watching the heavens for quite some time before I started writing the book, um, watching the planets move, and um, over the course of the, the years of the gold rush, from the perspective of the Hokitika gold fields, which is where I wanted to set the book, and um, 
had decided on this date because several interesting things were happening that I could, I kind of wanted to follow. Can you say what they are briefly? Sorry. Just yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the first chapter of the book is called um, Mercury and Sagittarius. And this is, like all of the chapter titles in the book, this is the, the actual placement of Mercury um, at, at that time from this point of view, um, from the point of view of Hokitika. And um, I was interested in Sagittarius when I was doing my research because uh, Jung, the psychologist, believed that it was the house of the zodiac that was um, associated with the collective unconscious. And there's this kind of mythical um, adventure, kind of storytelling heart at the, the base of the principles behind this, this sign that I really liked. And um, I was, I found out via various um, disreputable websites, which I won't name, um, much of the astrological content in the book has very disreputable, um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, research associated with it. But I, I had discovered that when Mercury enters Sagittarius in a person's chart, um, what, what ends up happening is that um, the, the kind of storytelling or communicative um, influence of Mercury intersects with the, the kind of uh, collective unconscious principle of Sagittarius in a way that um, is very like the beginning of a story. And it kind of has a, a storytelling in influence. So I, when I saw that, I thought, okay, well, I'll have... I'll, I, I can start here, and I'll have my mer mercurial character um, enter into the situation and have my Sagittarian character begin to tell him a story, and, that, and that's how I'll, I'll kind of begin the book. Um, and there were all the other placements of all the other planets on that day. I kind of fed in after I had already had that kind of initial placement, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it sounds kind of... Um, I know that it sounds really restrictive when I talk about it, as though I had this, um, this, these templates that I was kind of applying to the book. Um, but really, I, it was quite, you know... The experience of writing it was quite different, that, um, in the sense that... The zodiac is a, a system, you know, and very much in the same way that music, I think, is a system, that it is so capable of um, such interesting interrelation and such interesting um, internal patterning that really I could kind of pick and choose which, um, which aspects of the, that system I was going to play with and which I was going to discard, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so... You know, on that, in that way, the, the structure was really driving it. But, um, you know, that on, on the other side of the coin, you know, I feel like I'm always saying this, that, that um, the, the plot was, was everything, because that, that's where the human drama of the book resides, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, a, a, a structure doesn't really drive... Um, you know, I, I don't know, like I, I, I'm kind of taken with this idea of um, music. Um, the, the parallel actually between music and, and the zodiac is quite strong in the sense that there are, there are 12 semitones in the western octave. So to get from C to the C above, you, you make 12 steps. But there are seven natural notes, so seven white notes between C and the C above. Um, so it's called an octave not a septive, obviously, because there are two C's in it, so that makes up eight. Um, and so this, this intersection of seven and 12 is very similar. You know, you, you actually see it quite a bit in various, um, uh, you know, ar architectural patterning Systems, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and so... Oh, I'm sorry, I completely lost my train of no, thought. No, no, no. <laughs> it's interesting what you, you say about storytelling. Because, of course, your first huh. book, The Rehearsal, was also very much about storytelling and the, the dramatisation of one story over another. Or, um, and that seems to be a consistent... Even though the books themselves are very different, and both actually sort of formally daring, but in very different ways, I think, um, that that, mm. that preoccupation is, is consistent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was interested in my first book, The Rehearsal, and kind of playing with uh, ideas of performance and um, stage spaces, and at what point kind of we can kind of take off these layers of performance um, that we put on every morning or in, in, in certain circumstances. And I think that the, ca the carry-on over to the luminaries in my mind or in my experience is that um, the zodiac as a system is utterly dependent upon circumstance. It's, it's a system of complete relationality. So, um, for example, all of us would say that we have a star sign. But all this means is that the sun is, was, was in that sign in, in the, during the month that we were born. And it's a very small part, actually, of, of, of the complete picture of what, what, the, what the sky looked like at that time. And you know, if we say, oh, you know, he's such a Libra or something like this, um, all that means is that we're, we're understanding that through the lens of the sun. But actually, the influence of one of the other planets when put in intersection with that sign would produce quite a different cocktail, mm. you know. So I really liked this idea that in the Zodiac that everything is, is dependent upon its environment. And it's only kind of in the, in the um, uh, connections that, that, that are made, that um, kind of, you know, well, really, a story's born, as, as, as mm. you're saying. What, what, what did the sky look like when you were born? Oh, um, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you want to know where all my planets are? Um, well, I mean, if <laughs> <laughs> I feel not? like it's quite revealing. Um, <laughs> You'll have to interpret well, it for us. We won't know automatically, <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, well, you know, it's, I have most of my planets in the second half of the zodiac, actually. I've got quite little in the first half of the zodiac, so I don't know. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, the, the zodiac is a system, you know, I'm, I'm not really an astrologer. I'm, I, it's, <laughs> I, I, I really, We're going to ask you to predict um, <laughs> things for every single person in the audience. You know, I, I, I'm interested in the, the zodiac as a as a generative tool. I was interested in it. I'm not sure how far my interest in it is going to extend really past this book, you know, in a, mm. in a way. But did you um, learn anything about yourself through that tool? Yes, I think so. And I think that it's impossible not to. And that's one of the really interesting things about any kind of psychological template, which is essentially what the Zodiac is, that when we encounter a picture of ourselves that somebody is presenting to us, whatever it is, like however much credence we want to give it as kind of thinking, feeling people, we have some kind of reaction to that, you know. Um, there's a character in the book uh, whose archetype is the um, planet Venus. Her name's Lydia Wells. Mm. And she has a line um, a little bit uh, later on in the book where she says, a person's fortune always changes in the telling of it. Mm. Um, and this idea that um, by hearing your fortune told, you're there from then on going to act. Yeah, like Oedipus, um, or not, you know, the opposite. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. Or like any, any character in any novel involving time travel, you know, it's always, <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost a, um, a commonplace, I think, that that's, that that's true. Yeah. 
Well, what, well, can you tell us one thing about yourself that you found or that you altered or that you... Well, I found out that Margaret Thatcher was a Libra, which I am, and I was, <laughs> I was a bit upset about that. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't make you want to behave more like her. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> shall, we, um, shall we listen to you for a little bit? If you could read us a passage oh, sure. from the luminaries, that would be great. Yeah, well, speaking of Libras, I thought that since we are still in Libra, I would read a little piece uh, that corresponds to the... Um, um, you know, that, that, that involves the Libran character. Um, just before the luminaries begins, a large sum of money is discovered, um, of pure gold, is discovered in the, the, fort, in the um, cottage of a man who's recently died. And the man who has died uh, is, uh, is, well, was, a luckless kind of drunkard character. And... Um, it's, it, it becomes a kind of a preoccupation of everybody in the town to try and figure out why it was that he was holding on to this great sum of money. And um, the, in the piece that I'm going to read to you, um, the, the two characters are meeting. Um, Harold Nielsen, who plays the Libran um, archetype, um, uh, who is a commission merchant and has just been charged to clear the estate of this dead man, Crosby Wells, but in clearing the estate has made quite a bit of money on commission on this fortune and is therefore implicated in, in its um, appearance in the cottage. And he's talking to, um, or he's about to start talking to, uh, Joseph Pritchard, who is the town chemist, and also in implicated in this hermit's death in the sense that a, um, a file of laudanum purchased from his drug shop, from his emporium, was discovered underneath the dead man's bed. So they're both um, embroiled in ways that they're um, a little bit um, uh, unsure about. At midday on a Saturday, Harold Nielsen... I'm sorry, I'm just going to put my glasses on. I was wondering why that was, why that was feeling, feeling hard to read. Um, at midday on a Saturday, Harold Nielsen could usually be found in his office, sitting before a stack of contracts, wills and bills of lading, patting his breast every ten minutes or so to check again the silver pocket watch that would release him to his luncheon, which he took with medical regularity each day at the non-parade. Nielsen recommended this routine to any who would listen, believing very stoutly in the curative properties of dark gravy, pastry and ale. He did much recommendation, in fact, and often made an example of his own customs for the profit of other less visionary men. He derived an especial pleasure from argument, so long as it was of the pre preposterous hypothetical variety, and so loved to fashion absurd theories of abstraction from the small but dedicated circle of his own tastes. This attitude was affectionately reinforced by his friends who thought him vivacious and amusing and scorned by his detractors who thought him affected and self-absorbed. But these latter voices were subdued in Nielsen's ears and he spent no effort to better make them out. Harold Nielsen smoked a pipe a fat calabash with a bitten-down stem, though his affection for the instrument had less to do with the pleasures of the habit than for the opportunity for emphasis it provided. He often held it in his teeth unlit and spoke out of the corner of his mouth like a comic player de delivering an aside, a comparison which suited him, for if Nielsen was vain of the impressions he created, it was because he knew that he created them very well. Today, however, the mahogany bowl was warm, 
and he was pulling on the stem with considerable agitation. The hour of his luncheon was past, but he was not thinking of his stomach, and nor of the ruddy-cheeked barmaid at the non-pareil who called him Harry and always saved the choicest edges of the pie crust for his plate. He was frowning down at a yellow bill upon his desktop, and he was not alone. At length, he pulled his pipe from his teeth and lifted his eyes to meet the gaze of the man sitting opposite him. He said in a low voice, I've done no wrong, I've done nothing below the law. It's who stands to profit, said Joseph Pritchard. That's what a justice will be looking for. Seems you made a very tidy profit by, by this man's death. By the legal sale of his estate, which I took on after he was already in the ground. In the ground, but warm, I think. Crosby Wells drank himself to death, said Nielsen. There was no cause of an inquest, nothing untoward. He was a drunk and a hermit, and when I've received these papers, I believed his estate would be small. I had no idea about the bounder. You're saying this was just a lucky piece of business. I'm saying I've done nothing below the law. But someone has, Pritchard said. Someone is behind this. Who knew about the bounder? Who waited till Crosby Wells was six feet deep and then sold off his land so quiet and so quick without ever going to auction? Who put the papers in? And who planted my laudanum under his cot? You say planted. It was planted, Richard said. I'll take my oath on that. I never sold that man a dram. I know my faces, Harold. I never sold a single dram to Crosby Wells. Well, then there you are. You can prove that. Show your records and receipts. We have to look beyond our own part in this design, Richard said. When he spoke vehemently, he did not raise his voice, but lowered it. We're associated. Trace it back far enough and you'll find an author. It's all of a piece. Do you suggest this was planned in advance? Pritchard shrugged. Looks like murder to me, he said. Conspiracy to murder, Nielsen corrected him. What's the difference? The difference is in the charge. It would be conspiracy to murder. We'd be convicted for the intention, not for the act itself. Crosby wasn't killed by another man's hand, you know. So we've been told, Pritchard said. Do you trust the coroner, Mr. Nielsen, or will you take a spade in your own hands and bring the hermit's body up? Don't be ghastly. I'll tell you this, you'd find more than one corpse in the hole. Don't, I said. Emery Staines, Pritchard said relentlessly. What the devil happened to him if he wasn't killed? You think he turned to vapour? Of course not. Wells died, Staines vanished, all in a matter of hours. Wells is buried two days later. And what better place to hide a body than in another, than in another man's grave? I like that line, trace it back far enough and you'll find an author. <laughs> <laughs> There's something really fascinating about the voice in this, um, not just the authorial voice, but also all the, the names even. I mean, so much of it is um, without any artifice rooted in the 19th century. I mean, was that difficult for you to pull off? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, for me at least, writing in an age that I obviously I'm not familiar with personally, um, involved two very different strands of research. And on the one hand, it was really important to me to uh, read a lot of 19th century fiction. And, um, you know, a little, a little bit of kind of historical background stuff to know who, who was on which thrones and, and stuff like that. But um, really to kind of immerse myself in the kinds of fiction that was being written at that time. Um, to find out how people were speaking in the novels that were being written and how, um, what kinds of values were, were animating people's behaviour, essentially. Um, on the other side, though, um, 
there's what I call kind of, um, I, I don't know, uh, site-specific research or something, um, where um, essentially you're, research, you're researching because you're solving, trying to solve problems as a, as a writer. And, um, you know, for example, um, I got quite late on into this book when I realised that I had a big problem with a, a certain um, shipping problem um, where um, there was a sale of a ship and I didn't know anything about the sale, how ships are sold or how ships are owned, really. And I really needed some kind of legal loophole, but I just I had no idea whether such a thing was possible in the 19th century. So then I had to go and read up about 19th century shipping insurance, and and luckily I found a loophole, which was which was which was good. Um, but but it's, it's it's kind of funny. They're they're quite different, I think. Mm. And I think that if you if you get too bogged down in the detail side of things, if um, you can end up, I don't know, writing a story that's quite stodgy and um, um, that, that kind of is trying to prove something, is trying to prove your research. And I think that that's always a bad thing, you know, that you should never be trying to prove something to the reader. You should be trying to persuade the reader of something, of, of uh, you should be trying to seduce the reader, you know, and that, that doesn't come about by, um, by listing all of the, um, the, the, the details from the books that you've read. Yeah. No, that's, that's a brilliant account of it. Can you tell us a bit about your, your life, well, your early life to start with? You grew... You, well, you were born in Canada and moved to New Zealand early. Yeah, um, yeah. My my parents were New Zealanders. My dad was born in America, but he's a New Zealander now, and he was studying in in uh, Canada. Um, and I was accidentally born, <laughs> and um, so I was. I'm kind of the rogue Canadian in my family. Um, um, there aren't any others. And um, then they, my family always knew that we would return to New Zealand after he finished his degree, which we did when I was about six years old. And then I grew up in Christchurch, um, which is on the east coast of the, um, the South Island of New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and so in a way, the west coast, which is where the luminaries are set, was very much my, my stomping ground as a child. Um, my family's quite outdoorsy, and we would always um, I'd go there to go tramping and, um, you know, um, you know, all, all, all of that kind of, uh, all of that kind of thing. So, the, the the passage over the mountains, which takes about um, maybe three hours from Christchurch, um, the passage that Alistair Lauderback, the politician and the luminaries, makes on horseback before the the, the road was put in, um, was, you know, the the trip that we made several times a year to go into the mountains and go tramping. So yeah, it's a very, um, a, a very kind of. Um, forming or shaping part of New Zealand for me. I, I feel like it's kind of on the inside of me in the sense that certain landscapes kind of become part of your in, internal makeup. You know, the, the, the West Coast is really inside, inside me. <laughs> was it a house full of books when you weren't on the road or camping? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, my mum my was a children's librarian when I was growing up. So oh, I, was, um, perfect. I was lucky in that and spent a lot of time at the library. And um, yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, and how about your daily life now? I mean, what is your writing system, if you have one, or what are your habits? Well, I can tell you about the luminaries. I mean, at the moment, since I handed in the manuscript of this book, I've, I've done no writing at all. And um, that was in um, almost a year ago, in, in, in January. Um, but while I was writing the book, um, I, don't, I don't know, like, I'm not, I'm not terribly disciplined, actually. You know, the, you hear of writers who kind of strap themselves down until something comes out. But I'm much more, um, I'm just a bit more impatient with that. My, my way of dealing with things not coming out immediately is just to go off and read. You know, I just think it's a, um, I, I get to 
bored, I guess, if I'm sitting there looking at a blank screen, I'll just go and read a book until the, um, the ideas start coming again. Um, but I wrote this book actually in quite a lot of different places. I started it when I was living in the United States at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Um, came back to Christchurch actually just after the fatal earthquakes there. So it's it quite strange to come back to a very transformed city. Um, much of the central city was still cordoned off at that time. And there was um, a, a huge number of aftershocks in the six months that I was living back home. They're still getting aftershocks actually. I think there's been... Um, 20,000 or 30,000 since the big ones of a couple of years ago. And, um, and, so, and so wrote a bit more of it there and then um, moved up to um, Wellington and then finally up to Auckland where I now live. So there's a, you know, a lot of, a lot, there was a lot of change actually that came into the book, um, um, which I, 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 for, for me was a good thing, you know, to be always uprooting oneself, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. And you, um, you live with a writer, is that right? How, how oh, does yeah, that work? Do you show each other your work? We do. Yeah, I actually can't understand writing partnerships where people don't do that. It, it just seems... I just don't know what they talk about in the evening. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, actually, my, my partner's a poet, um, which I think is, is quite nice because we're, we're, we're thinking about very similar things in, in terms of our, what we want from art, you know, and what we what we want from our own work and in our relationship with our own work. But we're, we're doing it in such different ways um, because narrative is such a different beast than, than poetry, um, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, every, every day when I was writing The Luminaries, I'd come home and, um, and read aloud um, and he would listen and we would talk about it. And, um, you know, sometimes you just say, OK, keep going. And sometimes there would be things to talk about, you know, and we'd kind of talked long into the night. Um, yeah, he's actually, I think he's had a couple of offers from other writers after hearing this, that they <laughs> <laughs> he's kind yeah. of come round to their houses and, and listen. Professional <laughs> and, and midwife for novels, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I should, I should let you ask some questions in a second, but will you just tell us what's next and also what you're going to do with the money? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, we're, we're living in quite a small apartment at the moment, so maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll try and change that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really, that, that part of it hasn't really sunk in, I think, you know. Um, but, but, but what's next for me is just going home to Auckland um, uh, and I'm, I'm te I teach part-time at a, a, a polytechnic in South Auckland um, and I'm keen to keep doing that because I, I find that it's a, real, um, it's a really interesting counterpoint to the writing life um, and kind of vital and energising in all sorts of cool ways, you know, because... Um, Beginner writers are always so excited and, and um, you know, um, just just in, in, interested in things. And it's really fun to be around that, that interest and that, that vitality and to be returning in my own mind to the basics, you know, e e every day. Um, asking a class full of students, you know, what is an action? You know, what, what is a dramatic action? And the, the, the answer that might come up is unlike any answer that I would give myself to that question. Mm. It's quite interesting to, to have that interplay and that dialogue. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. They're teaching you too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think that, that it, it has to work like that if, if teaching's going to be effective. Mm. Now, there, there are um, two microphones, possibly just one. Yeah, would you put your hand up if you have a question? Yes, at the back. Um, can it go around the back? Is that possible? Oh, no, we've got another Oh, one. no, you're right now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
On Sunday night at the South Bank, um, you were asked the question, what would it mean to you if you won the Man Booker Prize? And your answer was, I'm not going to answer that, I don't want to jinx it, which was right. <laughs> I just wanted to know if you would answer that question now. Well, I'll tell you, I'll make a confession actually. The reason why I blanked on the question and had to pass was because the first thing that came to my mind was extremely ungracious and I didn't want to say it in front of a room full of people, which was revenge on all of the people who have reviewed this book negatively. Um, and so I, I didn't really want to say that. And it wasn't really what I feel, but it was just the first thing that came to my mind and then I panicked and had to pass it on. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, it's still, it's still very unreal. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a kind of an unreal situation. Um, I, I feel really excited about the fact that, um, that this, is, this is going to be meaningful for New Zealand literature, you know. Um, and I, it's made me feel quite um, tender about my relationship to New Zealand as a country, actually. And, um, and I'm, you know, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I feel really honoured and, and proud that I live in an age, or we all live in an age, where, um, you know, a, a book can actually be considered on its own merits. I, I, I'm sure that it's the case that even 10 years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I, wouldn't, I would have been disqualified on the grounds that it, the people would have thought that I was too young, you know, that, that they, would have, they would have read my biography into the book and dismissed me and say, you know, we can't accept this person into this hallowed um, place because we don't want the likes of her in here. And so I, I, I'm, yeah, that's that. That's been a real, um, a real honour, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Is there another? Yes, right. If you hold on for the mic, thank you. First of all, Eleanor, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours as well. It's because uh, my sister is a kid sister, I'm a, uh, and my family is based out of India. And uh, it's, it's an honor to know that someone who just at of age of like 28 years has won the Man Booker Award, as, oh, as you just said. <laughs> and it will also inspire quite a lot of, uh, you know, uh, to be writers, to be published writers, to write more, to be more disciplined and have a framework and ideation process that you just talked about. It's beautiful. My question to you is, uh, during, during the process, you know, the initial part, uh, the ideation part, uh, w what was the influencing factor? As in, uh, was that only a person, or the, of course you talked about the app. Of mm. course, you talked about a couple of other things as well. As in, mm. in, in a day-to-day -day process. So, what was, what was missing? As in, was something more influencing stuff was there that you would like to hint on? Because maybe you would have spoken to a couple of other people, other friends, or. Uh, your partner, and you would have gotten more ideas about it. Just, just love to know about it. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, you know, um, conversation is really important to me as a kind of a generative uh, environment out of which something can be created. You know, and I think it's so interesting to talk, <laughs> to, to to kind of um, mull things over. Um, one of the things that really bothers me actually about. Um, uh, review culture in general is, is not when people disagree. I think that's really interesting. It's when people try and shut down conversations that I, I find that's, um, um, you know, a, a problem. You know, I, I, I said something that was reviewed, that was uh, quoted in The Guardian about um, the difference between the way that male writers and female writers are, are interviewed, in my experience. 
And it just seemed like the, the responses to that in the papers today have just been so hysterical and the, 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 their attempts to, to end the conversation rather than saying, what does this mean? Do we agree? You know, like, I don't agree and this is why. You know, the, it's, and instead they're, they're kind of shutting them down. So I would say that, that there was actually one extremely important conversation that... Um, kind of gave birth to the luminaries in some ways. I mean, there were a great many, but one very important one. And it was when I was living in Iowa, and I was at the bar one night with my friends, and my, one of my friends, who's also a novelist uh, named Justin Torres, um, was saying uh, that he'd done some sort of Myers-Briggs test online that day. And one of the questions had been, which do you value higher, justice or mercy? And I was sitting there with my other friend, Emma, and um, I said, well, isn't that an obvious question, though? Because absolutely everybody in the world would say, and I said the word justice, and my friend Emma said the word mercy at the exact <laughs> same time. And then we looked at each other, and I was like, how can you think that mercy is superior to justice? And she was like, how can you cold-hearted Margaret Thatcher person, how can you think that, that justice is superior to um, mercy? And it was really interesting. We talked for that night, you know, six hours. I, we just talked, we talked until after the bar closed. You know, we got ex very, very drunk, you know. And um, I cried at one point. And um, <laughs> we, um, we, what we came up with was an understanding that actually my understanding of what true justice was, was merciful. And her understanding of what true mercy was, was just. And the way that we got to that you know, paradox, essentially, at the end of the conversation was by setting up so many ridiculous hypothetical s situations, like, oh, right, so you know that somebody's going to murder your mother, and you, they've got, you know, they're asking you for mercy, and all this kind of stuff. And it was all born out of conversation, you know. So I've, I've actually kind of put a wink to that conversation into the luminaries, because um, uh, my friend Justice, I'm outing him here online, it's not very polite, but he's a Capricorn, and the, ca the, the, the Capricorn character in the book, his name's Aubert Gascoigne, there's a line in the book which says, um, he believed that uh, justice ought to be a synonym for mercy and not an alternative. So that's, that's kind of there as my little tribute to that conversation. Oh, it's lovely. Secrets. Secrets in the book. Um, is there anyone else who has a question? Put your hand up if you do. Yes, hang, hang on a second. I just wondered um, which bit came to you first. Was it the structure and the fact that you knew you wanted to use the planets and the zodiac, or was it actually the idea that you wanted to write about a mystery in Gold Rush, New Zealand? Uh, the Gold Rush part, actually. I had an idea for the book, for a book, um, which is now not in the luminaries at all. But the idea was that um, in the gold, during the Gold Rush... Um, a man would walk into a bar, um, you know, which is what, <laughs> the, the, this next part is not in the book, um, and uh, sit down and order something to eat. And he would be um, distinguished from the other pe people in the bar in the sense that he would be, be kind of carrying his own weather and be being rained upon and be extremely wet when everybody else around him was dry. It's kind of a slightly strange idea. And as he was eating, he would suddenly pitch forward and start kind of bleeding onto the table. And it would become ed evident that he'd been shot, but nobody in the room had shot him. So that he had some sort of a, a connection with another person elsewhere. And um, this is now not in the book. Um, I mean, it is in the book in some ways, but I, kind of, I can't talk about that for spoiler, spoiler reasons. Um, I, it, just, it just struck me as a cool way to, um, to, to, to begin a book. Um, and... 
I kind of put that aside and, um, you know, um, I don't know, just I, I guess was following all sorts of different um, paths in my idol research. Um, I was reading a lot about the history of medicine at the time because I'd come across this actually really fantastic book. It's a uh, Rutledge book, I think, about just a compressed... No, it's a rough guide, a, a compressed history of, um, of medicine. And in that um, medical book, um, this is completely unrelated to anything else, but it just caught my interest, um, I came upon the idea of astral twinship, which is this idea, that an astrological idea, that if uh, two babies are born, again, this is kind of a bit of a spoiler, but it's okay, um, uh, very, very um, near to one another, so under the same, at the same latitude, essentially, um, and longitude, and at the very same instant, then their birth charts will be identical, so their destinies will be identical. And um, I really liked that idea, and I thought, actually, this is, this is kind of cool. I'd like to know more about the stars and started following that. But the, yeah, the gold rush came first. Mm. I love the idea of germs that become things that you, know, you don't expect at all. Yeah, well, I think that, yeah, writing's very much like that. You can kind of, and it's quite strange as a writer because you, you can see the seeds for various things in ways that obviously the reader sees them quite differently, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. It looks like we have time for two more questions. So, yes, you were waiting, and then we'll have one <laughs> Hello, more. Hello, um, you, You've spoken about the Zodiac quite a lot this evening. And, um, <laughs> and a lot of people might think, oh, you know, Zodiac's a lot of mythological hocus-pocus. Is it fair to say that you don't? You, you, you ascribe to it more validity than that? Well, it was only quite recently, actually, that astronomy and astrology parted ways as disciplines. Um, you know, and I think that... I think that as a tool for divination, it doesn't make any sense to believe in astrology. Just because we're all human beings with free will and, and imaginations, and we're just going to go off and do whatever we want to do, you know? Um, so I don't really believe in the stars kind of um, determining our fates as people. But I think that as a, as a system, it's incredibly rich in cultural meaning and historical meaning. Um, there's a way of understanding the 12, the progression, the 12-part story of the Zodiac, for example, that patterns itself on the Bible. So you begin with Aries, Adam. This is kind of the object of Aries, becomes Adam. The subject of Eve is Taurus. And then Gemini, which is a kind of a, 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 kind of a sign of duality, the, the twins, is the knowledge of good and evil. And it, it, it goes on, so on and so forth away the way around, like um, Cancer being the flood, uh, Leo, the age of Hebrew kings, and then Virgo, the um, Israelites, um, you know, all, all the way around. And, and so there's, there's so much, I, I, there's so much to be learned, I think, from it as a system that is beautiful to me. Um, and I think that um, the scorn with which people treat it as a system it's a, little, it's a little bit strange. Like, I think that it, um, it's just lost a lot of intellectual, um, I don't know, validity, you know, in, in, in the 20th century. And we've come, become very, very scornful about um, mystery. But I, I think that mysteries are interesting, you know? Like, I think that actually one of the most defining uh, characteristics or, um, you know, uh, attributes of being alive it's all of these mysteries that no, nobody knows the answers to. We n none of us know what's going to happen when we die. You know, none of us know why, like, 
the true answer to the question, you know, can you do good by doing evil? You know, like, we don't know those, those, the answers to so many things. And so I think that a, that a system that, that is content with its own mysteries and, um, you know, investigative of those mysteries to a certain extent, but, um, you know, ultimately um, remains opaque is, is um, you know, very, very worthy of cons serious consideration. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Thank you. but I'm I'm aware that I sound like a lunatic, so yeah. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. There's also this, that. This is yeah. the sanest exposition I've ever heard. So. <laughs> One more question, I think. Um, yes, is that right? Sorry. Hello. Uh, firstly, huge congratulations. Thank Even you. I'm older than you are. <laughs> It's too late for you. You can't do it. Way too late. And then, secondly, your uh, book—I didn't have a chance to read the whole of it, but it struck me as amazingly musical, and it sounds really oh, well in, in reading. And it's—it really strikes me like there are, I don't know poets like Rimbaud that sound much better when you read them, and like Baudelaire, who you preferably read in silence. And okay. I'm really, really. <laughs> interested is it because you you really like music or is it you're really into theater and you're like mm. oh, I know you read the lines to with your partner but yeah and I think that that has I mean I think that that's a really good thing to do to read out loud um, because just as you say like there are all sorts of rhythms and actually accidental rhymes which I know from grading you know a million undergraduate papers um, is one of the biggest things that people you know the biggest trips that people um, don't don't realise are in are in their fiction. You know that that sentences will rhyme in ways that they're not aware of. And that, it, you read it out loud, you see it immediately. Um, or all sorts of other repetitions, like realising that you're you're using the same adjective three times on a page or something like that. And some somehow the page can be quite inert almost when you're reading it. That when you're performing it, it, it becomes quite a different a different kind of artifact or experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm really interested in syntax and, and, um, and, and the ways in which rhythm play into the, the kind of the architecture of a paragraph, you know, and um, one of the things that I always say to my students actually is, is one of the most important things that you can do as a beginner writer is to experiment in using all the different types of sentences. One of the really interesting things when people start writing is nearly everybody writes in compound sentences with lots of ands and lots of buts. Um, because we speak like that, lots of becauses. You know, that, that, that is how um, we speak, because we kind of roll on, clause after clause. Um, and forcing yourself to write in simple sentences, for example, where you where you'd never do that, or in co complex sentences where you're subordinating everything completely changes the rhythm of the prose and then learning how to kind of use variety as a way of building interest into the fabric of the paragraph um, is I think a really important skill so um, yeah well thank, thanks for saying that it was musical that was really nice thank you and thank you I think, I think we have to wrap this up um, thank you very much for coming and above all congratulations Eleanor and thank you for thank speaking to us thank you very much us. cheers yeah. thanks